Hi, this is Mike Smone. I'm Executive Director of the Alumni Relations Office at NJIT. I'm very happy to welcome you to our next Highlander chat. My guest today is Dr. Mark Becarassi, class of 1982. He's currently a consultant for many biopharma companies. He was the Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President for Clinical Development and Regulatory Affairs at Inovio Pharmaceuticals. He was the Director of Regulatory Affairs for Vaccines and Biologics at Merck. He was an assistant professor of pediatrics at St. Christopher's Hospital in Philadelphia, and he's a fellow of the was a fellow of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Unit at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, among many other roles. Dr. Bakarazi, thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. Now, you were a fellow uh, of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Unit, a variety of other roles. Um, you've got a pretty unique perspective on COVID and what's going on with COVID right now. Have you seen anything like what we're going through right now? Is there any historical experience you can compare it to? Really, the only thing that came to mind was um, that was even close was when I was attending New Jersey Medical School which is right down the street from NGIT. Uh, it was 1986 and 1990. And AIDS was a new disease that actually didn't even have a virus attached to it yet uh, when I first enrolled. Uh, it happened while I was in school. And, uh, you know, obviously AIDS was causing a lot of trouble, a lot of uh, disease and at that community in Newark, uh, very much so. Uh, but also a lot of uh, concern publicly, uh, especially in the early days when information wasn't very good about, you know, different things about the virus. <clears throat> the roots of transmission weren't very clear. Uh, of course, in that case, it wasn't the acute infection that was so dangerous, but really chronic disease that had a very high mortality rate in the early days uh, before there were good medications. Uh, although, you know, it would take up to 10 years for, uh, you know, people to succumb to that disease. But this COVID-19 pandemic is really different uh, in a lot of ways, especially the fact that it's really virtually affecting every American every day, as we know. Uh, and of course, the New York, New York, New Jersey area, where most of our alumni probably still call home, uh, is currently the epicenter, uh, sadly. Um, the impact of HIV and AIDS was surely severe, especially in certain high-risk groups but it never really affected all of us the way this pandemic is, both medically and economically uh, as well. Yeah, thanks for that. I, that was one of the things I was very interested to discover was um, how involved you were. Clearly at that time, there was so much going on, and particularly with regards to learning about something new like that, um, but also how the concept of uh, development goes along with treatment with vaccines and so on. Um, what I have been interested to discover lately, particularly, was uh, how long that regulatory process is, uh, both for testing, but also for discovery. Um, given the nature of COVID and given your previous experience with uh, regulatory affairs, do you think there's going to be a change in our regulatory and vaccination system? Or do you see this as just something that's part of the process and it's the way we have to go? Well, I definitely think it's going to affect the system, uh, although I think it'll probably be, you know, sort of very specific effects and not potentially general effects, although general effects would be would be welcome as well. <clears throat> um, you know, my hope is that there'll be new or at least much improved mechanisms put in place to accelerate the type of development needed in a time like this, not just for vaccines, <clears throat> but also other preventive and therapeutic options for any future rapidly emerging infection uh, like COVID-19, uh, because you know many people feel that this won't be the last. 
uh, and I think that's uh, clearly correct. So, you know, I think my hope in general is that uh, the United States will create a new capability to prepare us for the next threat uh, or the next waves of COVID-19 even, uh, which, you know, the experts are all predicting is going to happen. It's just in terms of when and how severe it will be. And I think that capability will be much like the creation of TSA after in response to 9-11. Uh, some sort of agency needs to be put in place uh, that would encompass all aspects of pandemic preparedness from rapid test development and case ascertainment and tracking to ma creating massive stockpiles of personal protective equipment, the PPE, that's now in the news, you know, supplies from gloves to the N95 respirator masks to ventilators, um, but also probably most importantly, you know, the creation of some sort of logistical organization. You know, the military is very good at logistics and, you know, that capability has been done. So, you know, uh, Bill Gates, said more than five years ago that World War III was going to be fought against the virus. And sadly, it turns out he was right. So we do have to go to war against these things. And the type of logistic organizations that are used for war are going to have to be used for these sort of threats. You know, if such a system had already been in place on January 12th, when China first announced to the world that there was a threat, then the U.S. might have had no cases or maybe just a handful. And not the most in the world. And this really isn't a fantasy. Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and to some extent, South Korea were all well prepared. Not because they're so smart, but because they lived through the SARS pandemic uh, several years ago, and they were highly motivated to be ready for the next threat, and they were, uh, and they have contained it quite well. Their plan, you know, they contained, they, they didn't have to mitigate. So you did mention therapeutic options, um, and the way that I understand it uh, from some of our discussions is that there's preventive and, and therapeutic options. Um, what do you think the prospects are for that in terms of the medical solutions that we that we currently have available or might be in development? Well, I think ther therapeutic options are you know all you know heavily in progress now, and there's quite a few different avenues, uh, different companies are going down, and even where, uh, you know, even looking at older existing drugs that, uh, you know, companies may not be so interested in developing because, you know, the patents have expired on those drugs. So, you know, FDA is stepping in and testing, you know, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine because they potentially could have some effect on this drug, I mean, on this, uh, on this disease, as well as azithromycin, a commonly used antibiotic. So, you know, not just novel drugs like novel vaccines and, uh, you know, uh, different companies like Gilead and Regeneron around the country have different antiviral approaches and potentially even biologic approaches, you know, creating antibodies against the, against, you know, creating man-made antibodies against the disease, as well as the possibility of using plasma from people who recover. Uh, there's a possibility that that could be enriched and given to people who are acutely ill with this disease. So, there's a wide variety of things going on. Um, you know, antivirals has not been the most successful area of pharmaceutical development, not like antibiotics for uh, bacteria and, and, uh, and fungus. Uh, antivirals have been a little less successful. <clears throat> In some cases, they've been very successful, like against herpes viruses. Uh, those have worked out really well. But against influenza, for instance, there are antivirals available, but you know they're uh, 
efficacy, you know, their effectiveness is, is modest uh, currently. But, you know, uh, massive amounts of research and uh, effort is going into this. And, you know, multiple, multiple trials are ongoing as we speak uh, to see what might work and what might not work against COVID-19. So, Mark, um, as we're discussing this, it does strike me from, again, from everything I've heard, these things take quite a bit of time. Um, I just heard from the vice president yesterday that, uh, you know, there's this possibility that uh, we we come to October and there's a resurgence of this. Uh, we've seen it apparently previously with the 1918 flu. There's these sort of rounds of uh, the virus getting out and infecting people. Um do you think that that's likely? And I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit with that. Um, and if so, you know, what do we do? What what needs to happen before October for us to be a little more effective in terms of how we deal with this? Yeah, well, I mean, most experts agree that that's really inevitable, uh, that there will be, you know, subsequent waves. And, you know, how well we uh, handle those will depend on how well we prepare in the time uh, between this hopefully uh, soon upcoming peak in, in disease and the next, uh, the next wave. So, um, you know, it really, you know, uh, all the things that didn't go right this time around, uh, hopefully we can get better next time around. I think there's a few uh, critical things that need to happen. Um, I would, you know, categorize maybe three. Uh, obviously, uh, what's happening now where everyone is doing their part by social distancing, staying home as much as possible. Uh, those are all great mitigation uh, strategies for preventing uh, any of these uh, pandemic uh, situations. But, you know, uh, what really needs to happen, you know, behind the scenes is that uh, our testing capability, so the tests have been developed, uh, that's not the problem. Uh, and they've gone from, you know, gone to very rapid turnarounds, you know, even 15 minute results. However, obviously those tests have to be ramped up, the manufacturing those tests have to be ramped up. And a test is nothing unless there's a way to administer it and a way to evaluate it. So uh, again, it comes around to having uh, enough equipment to do this. So not just the test itself, the test requires reagents that are in short supply currently. Uh, so they've been developed, the work has been done, the design has been done, but in order to ramp up and manufacture enough, uh, we need lots of everything. We need from, from the swabs that uh, you know are used to obtain the sample to the protective gear that the people administering the tests have to wear uh, each time and having you know more efficient protective gear. Because currently, you know, Typical recommendation would be that after every test, someone should have to apply new gear. So things like that are, you know, really hampering uh, the ability to to do testing. So we need better ways to do that, and we need you know massive quantities of these supplies to do that as well. And then the third thing, really, um, you know, is not just supplies for testing, but supplies for everyone, uh, especially healthcare workers, uh, need lots and lots of. Uh, protective personal equipment to protect them uh, because they're on the front lines for this. I can remember, you know, back in the late 80s, you know, I was somewhat on the front lines with the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, I was still a medical student, but I was taking care of patients. And, you know, I uh, stuck a needle from an AIDS patient in my finger. 
Um, you know, at the time, there really wasn't much to do about that. Now, I escaped that. You know, I, I dodged that bullet. Uh, nothing ever happened. But, you know, I had that same fear that I know a lot of healthcare providers are having today uh, as they take care of these patients uh, because uh, not only is it dangerous, but in normal circumstances, but it's, you know, extremely dangerous when you don't have the right equipment, which is already happening here in the United States, something I never thought I'd see. Uh, but we need a massive buildup of the protective equipment. Uh, I would say at the top of that list is <clears throat> the uh, N95 respirator masks, which are really important for people taking care of patients with this disease. Um, but, you know, there are many other things that are needed as well. So, you know, we need a massive supply of those uh, for our healthcare providers. Uh, estimates are, you know, we need somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four billion of those respirator masks, and we, our current manufacturing capacity doesn't even come close to that. So we need engineering solutions, and I think, you know, our alumni and our students can, can help in this way. Uh, I really think, um, you know, the current masks are, are fine, but, you know, if someone could develop a mask that was even more effective than 95% and, you know, potentially cleanable, you know, rapidly cleanable, uh, you know, Innovation is going to help help in this in this uh, response to this uh, threat and the response to future threats. So we really need some innovation, and we also need you know built-in manufacturing capacity to be in place and to be ready to go, uh, and for there to be you know uh, substantial stockpiles as well. Um, you know, it's not always the sexiest thing, the vac you know fancy vaccine or the fancy drug. Um, you know, when it comes to malaria, malaria still hasn't been, you know, there are drugs for malaria, and but there still isn't a vaccine for malaria. But, you know, uh, containment really can come down to effective mosquito nets. So, you know, I think the N95 mask is sort of the mosquito net uh, of this, of this uh, biologic threat. We need to get them out there. We need to manufacture them. We need to make better ones uh, so that we can all be protected. And not just our healthcare providers, but you know, for the sake of our economy, we might need, you know, masks, uh, hopefully N95 masks, potentially for every American to protect themselves until we can get this under control or in subsequent waves. So I do want to do a uh, quick shout out to our Honors College students uh, who had been working on new prototypes for Hackensack Medical and also to our Makerspace folks uh, who are working uh, on providing and using their facilities uh, to provide to hospitals some of the protective equipment that you're talking about. Um, Mark, I'm going to take a quick detour. Uh, you mentioned something that really shook me, especially because I was uh, growing up in the uh, 80s and the 90s around the time frame uh, where this was so relevant. Uh, you said you got stuck with a needle uh, when you were uh, working with um, patients who were suffering from uh, HIV and AIDS. Um, I've got to imagine that that was something uh, truly difficult to deal with in the moment. Um, do you have any advice for people right now who are maybe undergoing this incredible anxiety or these concerns where, you know, we talk about face masks and full body covering. I know when I go to the supermarket, if I need to go, I think once uh, so far, people sort of look at each other with this fear. Um, having experienced something so dramatically uh, greater than that, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you get yourself back down uh, in a way where you can deal with the um, situation? Well, I mean, everyone will tell you, first of all, you know, don't panic. 
but be proactive and do what's necessary uh, to protect yourself and your families. Uh, you know, obviously the first thing is stay home as much as possible and isolate yourselves until we have a better handle on this. You know, uh, widespread testing, not just of people who are symptomatic, but of asymptomatic people would go a long way towards, you know, defining who's, you know, potentially infectious and who isn't. But right now you really sort of have to assume that anyone could be infectious, even if they look like they're doing fine. So you have to take precautions. Uh, you know, it's really the unknown, you know, uh, Folks who get infected, they're typically asymptomatic for five or six days. It's just a fact. Uh, so they may not know that they have it yet. Uh, so you have to be careful. Uh, you don't have to panic. But, you know, keep yourself out of high-risk situations as much as possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, just be smart. Uh, do what, you know, the authorities are telling us to do. And, you know, something else that I heard... Um, if you think you're being silly, you're probably being adequately uh, protective of yourself. So this is a new norm. Uh, this is not, you know, you know, December 2019 when we didn't know anything about this. This is a new norm, and for now, uh, temporarily, we're going to have to do some things we've never done before. Just like now, we go through heavy what we think, you know, uh, security at the airport when we didn't do that. In the year 2000. So this is the new norm. Do what's necessary. We've all adapted to, you know, the lines at the airports. Uh, we'll adapt to this. Uh, it's going to look a little different, but, you know, be careful. Uh, this is what's effective. <clears throat> Obviously, I didn't even mention the decontamination, using the Lysol sprays and so forth, and washing your hands thoroughly, you know, frequently, and, you know, wiping down surfaces as much as you can. Uh, you know, be calm and be smart. So, Mark, um, you've talked a lot about the different solutions that you think would assist the country uh, in dealing with this problem a little bit better. But thinking back to something like uh, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, how there was a series of actions that had to take place, you have to start somewhere. Um, is there what are, what are the top two or three areas that you think we need to do today uh, to try and build support later on for um, addressing this problem? in a more comprehensive fashion? Well, they're already in progress. I mean, number one is what we're doing is with the social distancing. That's key and that's something everyone can help with. You know, I would say number two is the testing issues have to be resolved. Uh, obviously the designs are there, the tests have been developed, <clears throat> but not getting them up, ramping them up in adequate numbers and being able to test uh, adequately and trace cases adequately is a key, uh, you know, but in the meantime, you know, isolating anyone we think might be sick is really the only tool we have. <clears throat> but we really have to, I think, expand testing uh, capability. I think that's that's a given. And the third is what I mentioned also, <clears throat> ramping up production of protective equipment and getting it to the point where there are no longer shortages, where, you know, our, our medical uh, folks are protected and don't have to worry about running out, and don't have to worry about sharing, and don't have to worry about... Uh, you know, going into a room with a person who potentially has COVID-19 and uh, worrying about, um, you know, going in without it and coming out with it. Uh, and that's key, you know, because they're going to know that those, those folks are really working hard and taking risks every day. Uh, it's part of the job, but it doesn't, shouldn't have to be part of the job to do this in an environment where, 
you're not properly uh, protected. That's that's not right, and we have to solve that uh, as soon as possible. I would say, you know, we're doing a good job with the, you know, most of us are doing a good job with the social distancing, um, the testing. I know they're working in the in the background uh, trying to get that solved, and uh, hopefully uh, those supplies are coming. But you know, right now in certain places like you know our, you know, the New York metro area, the supplies aren't coming fast enough, and we really have to uh, improve on that dramatically uh, yesterday. Okay, Dr. Bagrazi, uh, I know you're busy, so I don't want to keep you too long. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I think your insight here was extremely valuable. Um, and uh, I'd really like to continue this conversation in the near future. Let's see if we actually follow some of those steps and how NJIT might be able to help support that. Thanks very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Yeah, uh, everyone, please stay safe. So again, my name is Mike Small, and I'm Executive Director of the Alumni Relations Office. I want to invite you to leave messages for Dr. Bagarazzi in our comments. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, Facebook, or LinkedIn, leave messages in the comments, and we'll forward those on, uh, and we'll continue the conversation. In the meantime, thanks very much. Stay safe, and best wishes for a safe and healthy spring to you and to your families.